You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm a an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and apparently incapable of introducing myself. Joining me on the air today is someone who can, in fact, introduce himself, but I'll introduce him anyway. He's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University, and he is Dr. David Grubbs. David, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. Very good. And also on the line, coming to you from Minnesota, is Dr. Michael Farmer. He's an associate, no, he's an assistant professor of English at uh, Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. See, I missed one thing, Michael, and I get thrown off. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I, I will hopefully be an associate professor soon. I submitted my tenure package last week. Oh, it'd be nice to have tenure. Uh, well, I but... mean, I wouldn't have tenure, but I'd be moved up to associate. I'd be like, we'd be equals at last, Nathan. Yeah, except that I just put in my portfolio to become full professor. So. U-S-O-B. <laughs> Dang it, Gilmore. <laughs> uh, in so many ways, Michael, in so many ways. Uh, tell you what, guys, what is going on on the Christian Humanist Radio Network? So many things. Our uh, most recent episode of Before They Were Live came out last week. It's on Peter Pan. In it, Josh altman uh subtweets Donald Trump. So I think that's a reason to listen to it. That's pretty awesome. Sectarian Review, uh, which I was listening to this morning, so I should know what it's about. Uh, son of a gun, how did I forget this already? It's about um, Alex Jones being banned <laughs> from Facebook. That's right. I Golly, I just need to stop trying to do this. Anything else going on on the network? Uh, Christian Feminist Podcast just put out an episode on, oh my gosh, I don't remember what it is, but it has my wife, David's wife, and longtime christian humanist listener isabel air it's about something like a catholic survey or something yeah all right all right i haven't heard it yet well, well listeners you can tell what a uh, frame of mind the three of us are in uh so of course we're going to take on a new uh, philosophical concept today uh i started reading about this phenomenon a while ago and it it uh intrigued me enough that i wanted to have a conversation with michael and david it is the mott and bailey argument so, David, before we dig into the philosophical structure called Mott and Bailey, we might as well talk about what a Mott is and what a Bailey is. Uh, what era of castle building sees these divisions, and when did they come up in the literary and historical record? Right. Well, the uh, Mott and Bailey is uh, associated especially with the Normans, uh, the Norman French, uh, and so in England it showed up with, well, the Norman Conquest. So do your do your in-laws live in a mountain valley? Uh no. Uh they don't. Um I kind of wish they did. That'd be that'd be pretty neat and on theme. Um so yeah, it uh, and dear listeners, um 
if I've never pointed it out on air before, again, um, note the note the irony of an Anglo-Saxonist marrying uh, uh, a girl with the surname of Norman. So there you go. Where was I? Yeah, Mont and Bailey. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist my terrible pun. Yeah, I know, right? Um, I, 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 I think I made that one pretty soon after we got engaged. I think I think I, st- I, I dubbed our engagement 1066 and all that. Your your uh your wedding was widely referred to as the Norman Conquest. <laughs> but I'm not sure if she's con- con- conquering you or if you're conquering her. I don't know. Widely referred to by whom? Graduate students. Oh, graduate students. Graduate students. It's a smarter level of joke. Anyways, Mountain Bailey's Normans, um, associated especially with that um, that uh, uh, switch from kind of the early medieval um, to the kind of the growth of feudalism. Um, Mountain Bailey's continue to be constructed uh, going on into the. 1200s, uh, 1200s, yeah, yeah, so about about into the 1200s. Um, they stopped being built for reasons, I'll get into that. Uh, what a Mountain Bailey is, our first article that we, uh, that we looked at has, this is the definition that they give, uh, uh, who is it? It was uh, Shackle, Nicholas Shackle. He says, a mott and bailey is a medieval system of defense in which a stone tower on a mound, the mott, is surrounded by an area of land, the bailey, uh, which in turn is encompassed by some sort of barrier such as a ditch. Being dark and dank, the mott is not a habitation of choice. The only reason for this existence is the desirability of the bailey, which the combination of the mott and ditch makes relatively easy to retain despite attack by marauders. Now, in other uh, the other shackle article that we looked at, and um, the 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 other one I can't remember who it was by. They all Alexander. Okay. Yeah, all three of them used pretty much this definition. There's a few things that it either states unclearly or gets wrong. The mott in Mountain Bailey is not the tower; it's the hill. The point of the Mountain Bailey is not that it's uh, a tower on a hill. It the mott is a hill made explicitly for the purpose. Um, the Mott and Bailey fortification is associated with um, open areas, plains, arable land. Um, prior to the Mott and Bailey system, if you wanted to build a fort, a fortified place, um, you tended to build it on top of a hill or some other defensible position. But if you're in open country, where do you build it? Well, what the Mountain Bailey does is they build a hill out of dirt, and then they put a tower on top of it. Um, initially, the tower would be wood, um, and then later um, you could re- uh, you could build a stone tower on top of it. But the Mott is the hill, not the tower. The tower is called a keep. Um, the other the other thing is the way that. Um, Shackle speaks of the bailey it's as if the bailey is something that the fortification is defending but the bailey is itself actually part of the fortification Um, it's kind of the outer ring of defenses with the keep being the inner ring of defenses Um, the place that this whole mountain bailey fortification defends is the 
the farmlands or whatever, the town that's uh, near it. So uh, some of the ways that the Mountain Bailey metaphor works is a little is a little off in terms of the history of the fortification. Um, the keep is not there to defend the Bailey. Um, the whole Mountain Bailey fortification is there to defend something that is outside of it. Um, let's see some other points. Baileys were also the support space for a residential castle. It wasn't possible to actually have a castle that was a or a fortification that you could live in without things like stables, workshops, storage. Uh, the Bailey was where those places were. Bailey is where work happened. Um, the keep is where people go if everything else has failed. So, um, I that that's the that's the history of it. Um, reason why Mott and Bailey's um, became so popular with the Norman Conquest is that you could build one quickly in an open space. Uh, the reason why they stopped being built is that improvements with um, massive stone construction improved and became fashionable and a, an, a quickly built pile of dirt would not support the weight of a castle. Um, so they bar started building castles either on flat land that could support it or, um, you know, on a hill, a natural hill that could support it. Um, so the Mountain Bailey was associated with open for open places that you needed a to be quickly defensible. So, yeah, Mots and Baileys. So it's reminiscent of sort of the old Roman way of you know sort of building fortifications anywhere the anywhere the army goes. Is that? A fair enough parallel yeah it's closer to the Roman kind of field fortification where they throw up kind of an earthworks and a timber wall quickly but then yeah that's kind of what I yeah, had in mind but then uh -huh. in course of time they'd upgrade it to a castrum um, with stone walls if it's a more kind of permanent occupation so, so all right fair enough fair enough well, Michael, Scott Alexander uses the Mott and Bailey to explain a certain kind of rhetorical or philosophical move uh, that Nicholas Shackle originally attributed to postmodernists in 2005. Now, both of these writers, Alexander and Shackle, later stretched the Mott and Bailey concept to apply to a broad range of what I found to be familiar rhetorical exchanges. So, Michael, before we start digging into examples, take a moment to lay out the basic structure of the Mott and Bailey doctrine as Shackle and Alexander lay it out. Well, I'm going to use an example because it'll make it clearer, but I'll give you the structure and an example. So on the one hand, let's say we have a controversial assertion. Uh, we should make eating meat illegal because it's bad for the environment. That's controversial. Uh, somebody questions that assertion. So we retreat to a relatively uncontroversial assertion. Uh, Americans eat too much meat or factory farming is bad or something like that. It's something related to the controversial assertion, but that's less mu uh, much less controversial, maybe even unarguable. Uh, so the interlocutor agrees with that assertion because it's moderate and reasonable. And then once the argument is over, we go back to saying that eating meat should be illegal. That's the, that's the Mott and Bailey argument. Uh, so it's about replacing propositions that are very difficult to defend with propositions that are very easy to defend and only doing so temporarily. I think the, the 
temporary nature of this is very important because if you just backed off, the other person would have won the argument. So the idea here is um, you're, they're not actually winning any ground in the long term, but you're not actually having to defend anything in the long term. And that means that it's a means of avoiding debate as much as winning a debate. You, you win the easy debate, so you never actually have to have the difficult one. Is that a fair description? Oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the feature that you highlight there is an important one that this is. Uh, and this is why I wasn't sure whether to call it rhetorical or philosophical, because it is something that happens in the course of a conversation. It's not something that uh, is systematized necessarily. Does that make some sense? Yes, it, it's a it's a defense mechanism. All right, fair enough. I mean, David, are there any, any other features of the, the broad structure that you want to hit before we get into the examples? I have a hunch we'll spend some time on the examples. Uh, just all the, the ways that the metaphor works with um, a position being asserted and then being assaulted, a retreat to a fortified space. Like that That's how the, the Mott and Bailey image works here with the the easy argument being the the secure keep um, in w to which you can run when you don't have good arguments for what are actually the positions you really want to occupy, um, but you recognize that they aren't they aren't as defensible, so you, you you kind of run away from defending them, hide in the keep, and then when your uh, when your opponent gets bored because your keep is unassailable. Um, you run back out and just start asserting the more, the much more interesting and less defensible things um, that you're really interested in. Right. Well, David, I mean, keep rolling in that direction. I mean, this is going to make a lot more sense as we get more examples out in front of our listeners. So uh, borrow your favorite one from the links that we'll provide in the show notes or present one of your own. I mean, what does Mott and Bailey look like in a particular context? You can give us one or two as you see fit, and when you've uh, presented yours, pass the baton to Michael, and he'll pass it on to me, I reckon. Sure. The one that Shackle uses first, even before he's introduced the Mott and Bailey image, um, and remember, he's, uh, his, main, uh, his, his main nemesis, his, his uh, target is uh, the postmodernists, and so he's specifically um, naming... Uh, Foucault and folks like that. So, the first one that he that he lays out there is the claim that truth is socially constructed, and he says there are two ways that you can take this. Um, one of them is fairly mundane and obvious and not terribly interesting, which is that um, any attempt to utter a truth is in language by a person in the context. Of a society um, so that those realities frame any attempt to speak a truth um, that's that he says is obvious and clear um, however if you want to say well gosh the ways that we the ways that we talk and use language just completely can you know change reality and change the world just based on how um, how society constructs those things and and now everything's now everything's up for grabs that's the much more that's the much more interesting one which he says is much less defensible so that uh, 
uh, he the way the way he presents it is you have a postmodernist saying, um, well, you know, just you know, to power or um, or the the notions of mental health or whatever. All of these things are socially constructed um, in order to enable the power of those who um, who are sort of in charge. And you start picking at that. You start, you know, the, you know, an opponent starts picking at that, and then they retreat to, oh, but all what we all we're really trying to say is, all utterances come through language in a social context. Well, what are you gonna, you know, that that's the that's the fort. So, which is a statement that's so obvious it's almost not worth making, right? It's not. It's not just that. That's less controversial. Who disagrees with that? It, w- Exactly. Well, and, and yeah, and, and, and that's, that's, that's Shackle's point is um, the, clearly this imagery, um, the, this metaphor depends on your enemies not having siege weaponry. <laughs> there's, no, there's no catapults for knocking keeps down. Um, but yeah, the, that, that. Uh, oh, I, I think you may have lost me there with the metaphor, David. <laughs> What's the what's the catapult in this argument? Oh well, uh, he he treats the keep as utterly unassailable, but in the course of time, uh, there became ways for knocking down stone fortifications. Uh, the stone fortifications ceased being unassailable um, when it wasn't just you know guys with star with swords trying to you know attack it. Um, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm just pursuing the metaphor. Um, but that's that's the example that he runs with, and most of the examples that he gives in that that first kind of critical essay are sort of variations of that. Um, usually, ones in which um, truth, the word truth, is often um, defined differently at different points in the text. He says um, so that sometimes it's saying something unremarkable, but redefined. Whereas other times, uh, it seems to be saying something um, more extraordinary. So that if truth only means uh, the sorts of beliefs common in a society, then you could say, you know, then you know, certain utterances about truth would be, well, you know, yes, of course, the way that beliefs are expressed in a society are influenced by the structure of that society. Um, but if you start using the word truth as if it, as if it means ultimate truth, truth, big T truth is socially constructed. Now you're saying something much more, uh, much more significant. And he shows the ways that uh, uh, certain authors go back and redefine what they mean by truth. But then in other places, use this word truth in a way that seems to have the force of big T truth. Uh, and this he sees it as, as a kind of, uh, as, a, as a, f- a form of the Martin Bailey, where the equivocation itself between what definition of truth are you assuming, does the reader need to assume in the context, um, is itself, uh, the, the Bailey is the big T truth, and the Mott is that redefinition that's unassailable. What would you add, Michael? Alexander gives my favorite example, and it's a, it's a thing I first noticed 10 years ago and has been driving me nuts, and now I have a word to describe it. 
So Oh good. Yeah. <laughs> Back then, two thousand eight or so, there was a trend of um female celebrities, often young female celebrities, saying, I'm not a feminist and without fail, internet feminists would uh mob them and say, Oh yes, you are a feminist. All feminism means is that you think women are equal to men. And so every woman's a feminist. So that would be the the mot, because I suspect almost everybody agrees that women are people. The Bailey is that if a, if a woman claimed to be feminist and expressed some sort of unorthodox feminist views, for example, that abortion is wrong, they would immediately become gatekeepers and say, oh, you can't be a feminist if you don't think X, Y, Z. And, I mean, maybe that's a defensible position, but you don't get to simultaneously hold that one and say that feminism is just the idea that women are equal to men. So that that is a, a modern Bailey tactic that has been bothering me for a long time. And I think it, it still happens, although what's interesting now is you, you just don't get that many young female celebrities saying they're not feminists. Nowadays, the, the trendy thing is to declare yourself a feminist, no matter what you believe. <laughs> um, now... An interesting thing about that is it doesn't mean that there's no possible definition of feminism. Either one of those things could be a definition of feminism. They're both defensible, I suppose, as definitions of feminism. It's just that feminism means you think women are equal to men is a very broad definition of feminism. And feminism means you're for unlimited abortion is a very narrow one. And you've got to decide which one you want to do. So the definition has to be consistent. And, and in that sense, I think a lot of times these Mott and Bailey arguments are really about consistency of definition, kind of what David was saying about truth being defined in different ways. We need to decide whether we want our definitions to be narrow or broad and proceed accordingly, but you can't just oscillate between the two of them. There's another right. possible example that's been bothering me even longer than that, and this is, this comes from one of Alexander's commentators. I'm not sure if this is really a Mott and Bailey example or not, but so you have a comedian, and I have John Stewart in mind, um, you have a comedian making political commentary that he clearly expects to be taken seriously as political commentary. Then he's questioned on it, and he retreats immediately back to, I'm just a comedian. Oh, that's mm. good. That's good. I'm, I'm not 100% sure that's Mott and Bailey, but it's Mott and Bailey adjacent. <laughs> oh, I think it is, because, I mean, uh, you know, the implicit argument at the very least is that, uh, you know, commentary... Uh, is something that is just basically all utterance. I mean, that's kind of the Bailey, right? Uh, but then the Mott is, you know, real political commentary is only that undertaken by experts in very limited fields. So therefore, mine shouldn't be taken as that. So, I mean, I think that's exactly the structure. So both of those things annoy me. And I know I just used two examples that are liberal techniques, but of course, um, conservatives do this all the time too. So don't, don't take this as, uh, as, as me saying that it's, it's some sort of liberal sin. I think this is maybe one of the two or three besetting sins of online discourse. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and my example, Michael, I mean, actually comes from more conservative circles because I, I think of anti-socialist arguments. Uh, you know, I'll start with the Mott. I mean, you know, or no, I'll start with the Bailey. I, I see, David, I'm reversing it. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it's the notion that, you know, anything from, you know, the UK's National Health Service to, you know, Sweden's Medical Service to Barack Obama to, you know, 
an extra gasoline tax is socialism, right? And, you know, the response to that is, well, you know, I mean, maybe that's not so bad, you know. Uh, these people seem to be doing all right with socialism. And then they retreat to the Mott, which is, oh, so you want it like they had it in the USSR and in Cuba and in Venezuela? Is that what you want? Yes. That's so, what I want. <laughs> I, I, I think that might be what, you know, uh, occurred to me when I saw this. And, of course, I mean, you know, if you are standing on the other side, the Mott and the Bailey just get switched, right? Because uh, if capitalism uh, means everything that, you know, Western Europe and the U.S. do globally, uh, then, you know, if you start critiquing that and you say, well, you know, there is government involvement, so it's not really capitalism, that's a similar sort of thing, right? So it, it's, it's interesting to me because I think, as Michael said, I mean, this is something that is certainly ubiquitous in online discourse. I think it's also very prevalent in sort of the talk radio world. Uh, and, you know, the once you start seeing the structure, uh, I mean, it, it seems to be everywhere, right? Well, and then you think, oh my gosh, I've done this many times myself. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Reading I these mean, articles that's... was kind of cathartic for me. <laughs> An opportunity nice. for penance. Yeah. Very good, very good. Well, Michael, that, that kind of brings me to the next question, which is, you know, what's interesting about this pair of blog posts, and again, we'll try to link to these on the show notes, uh, is that, you know, Shackle calls this a rhetorical strategy, but Alexander calls it a logical fallacy. So, Michael, I mean, what's at stake when we make this distinction between strategy and fallacy, and how do the proposed responses to Mott and Bailey differ based on how we diagnose it? Well, Shackle insists it's not a logical fallacy because there's not really an argument taking place, just what he calls a body of propositions. I'm not sure I agree with that. I see this as an argumentative strategy, and because it's a strategy, it absolutely can be a logical fallacy. And I think Alexander agrees with me on that point. He, in fact, calls it the inverse of the weak man fallacy. So the weak man fallacy works like this. I say that Americans eat too much meat. You can't argue with that, so you say, so you want to ban meat then. Um, but the problem is, if both of these are fallacies, it leads to an impasse, because if you say I'm committing the Mott and Bailey fallacy, Mott and Bailey fallacy is very difficult to say. I can just turn around and say, well, you're committing the weak man fallacy. And, and Alexander's point is, we need to be very clear about the terms that we're debating, and neither one of these fallacies is going to take place. Uh, and, and again, one of his commentators makes that, commenters makes that point, what do real life feminists say feminism is under normal circumstances when they're not trying to win an argument with someone? What we need to do is argue about the merits of that position and leave all the other ones aside for now or forever. Uh, and, and so I, I think that's why it is important to call it a logical fallacy or at least a destructive technique rather than this body of propositions thing that Shackle sets this up, sets it up as. Um, but it's, it's also worth noting that one man's Martin Bailey is another man's uh, weak man fallacy. And so the, the solution here is to be as concrete and specific as we can. Does that answer your question? Comp. <laughs> yeah. Well, I teach freshman comp. As do I, as do I. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly heading in an interesting direction. I mean, what I found interesting about their two responses is that Alexander, I think you're right. I mean, is calling for a more rigorous adherence to the particular. Whereas for Shackle, um, if you merely detect a Mott and Bailey strategy in the other, 
he calls it instantly fatal. Uh, so, I mean, that you know, for Alexander, you know, identifying it is just the first step. For Shackle, identififying it seems to be the, you know, the finisher. This is the thing about Scott Alexander, though. I, I don't think... I, I, I read that blog sometimes. It's one of the best blogs on the internet. And, and he never strikes me as someone who's just interested in winning arguments, which is what Shackle's approach leads to, right? It's instantly fatal. I don't have to listen anymore. Alexander seems to really want to get at the meanings of things. And so the uh, the Mutt and Bailey fallacy or the Mutt and Bailey technique, whatever you want to call it, is a uh, is a means of understanding what's keeping us from understanding, if that makes sense, and and thus a call for further discussion rather than shutting somebody down. That sounds about right. I mean, David, do you see any other distinctions between their approaches? Yeah, when one thing that I think might help is a distinction um, between formal and informal logical fallacies. Uh, a formal logical fallacy is when the relationships between propositions in a, in a syllogism don't generate uh, don't generate a true proposition um, in the way a proper syllogism ought to. So the post hoc ergo uh, propter hoc uh, is is uh, if I remember rightly a, an example of a of a formal fallacy. It's been a long time since I took logic. Um, the informal logical fallacy is it's a sign of faulty reasoning, but it's not necessarily a bad relationship between propositions. It's not the form of the argument. It's, it's the, it's the kind of logic that you're appealing to. So the straw man argument or uh, the art, the, the ad hominem argument, those are informal fallacies. It's not, um, it's not the precise relation of the propositions in a syllogism. It's, it's an unreasonable principle of, 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 of argument. Um, so I think Shackle is trying to say this, that the, the relationship between the Mott and the Bailey is not the relationship between propositions in a syllogism. They could be completely different arguments um, in that sense. So you've got one argument over here, women are people too, and then you have another argument over here, all true feminists, all true feminists believe in elective, in elective abortion on demand. Right? That, it, that those are two completely different sets of arguments um, and that are not necessarily connected in the same syllogism. Um, I think that's what he's trying to point out. But Alexander um, sees this relationship with that other kind of logical fallacy, which isn't about the relationship of propositions. And, he, and when, he sets it, when he compares it to the, the weak man fallacy, which is a variation of the straw man fallacy, um, he, he's kind of... So I, I feel like they're attacking it from different positions. Yeah, and real quick, just for our listeners, a weak man fa fallacy is a term that gets thrown around in these posts. It differs from the straw man fallacy in that the straw man uh, proposes an argument that no one has actually made. The weak man fallacy finds the most fringe, marginal, unreasonable version of the opponent's position that exists in the world 
and makes it representative of all members of that group. Is so, that a fair right. So Americans, Americans eat too much meat. The, the straw man would be, we should blast all meat eaters into outer space on a giant rocket. And the weak man would be, uh, we should make meat, eating meat illegal. Right, because mm. the latter, you could find someone arguing that. Right. Even though right. it would be, as you say, the fringe of the fringe. Yeah, exactly. Um, another another one that I think is Shackle is a he's he's a philosophy professor. He isn't just and and he one of the things in his first longer article, um, he's really concerned with whether an argument works. He really does believe that we can get at true statements um, through rigorous um, logical argument. He's not really just about winning. Uh, the way I took it when he said that identifying the Mott and Bailey is instantly fatal is that it instantly exposes someone as not really interested in an actual rigorous philosophical discussion because they're pulling a kind of rhetorical bait and switch. Um, I think he sees it as a tell that they're cheating. And if and and that uh, for him, uh, is is the thing that's fatal to the argument. They're cheating, so they need to get off the field. Yeah, and I, 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 I'm probably not being terribly charitable when I say that's just about winning arguments, but it is about shutting things down, right? It's it's saying if you, you're not playing by the rules of the game, so the game is over. I don't get that vibe as much from Alexander, and maybe that's just because I'm inclined to be very favorable toward him because I enjoy that blog so much. Well, I think, too, Alexander, I, I don't see him break out um, analysis of syllogisms and propositions the way that Shackle does. Um, also, Alexander seems to be much more interested in the discussion continuing fruitfully, whereas Shackle is a philosopher who's interested in the form being maintained. I I, I believe Scott Alexander is a uh, is a psychiatrist, so maybe maybe I'm just dealing with the difference in their professions. Maybe so. I don't know much about him. This was my first foray into that particular blog and that thinker. Well, both of them, really. Well, David, I mean, you're already kind of heading in this direction, so I, I want to hear more from you on it. I mean, what I noticed about the connections you were just now drawing is that for both of these, although in different ways, I mean, there seems to be a connection between uh, bad thinking and bad faith or, you know, a logical deficiency and a moral deficiency. Uh, am I just being overly sensitive here? Or, I mean, do you see that connection going on? And I mean, should that connection hold? I think Shackle is pretty clear in what he writes that uh, he sees it as a form of a form of logical che cheating and he sees it as a, as a, as a trick. Um, so for him, yeah, I, I, I think there definitely seems to be a, um, a moral valence to it at least a you're doing it wrong um and that makes you um suspect uh kind of kind of valence um the language that he uses to describe his examples of the mott and bailey are ones that uh he he he, he uses language that, that that implies a sense of deceptiveness on the part of the people who employ the strategy um Maybe I don't remember as much of that in Alexander, um, but but both of them uh, both of them I do think edge over into this um, shackle maybe more than Alexander. Um, whether they're overplaying that, 
Uh, I do think that it's possible for someone who is enculturated in a position uh, for this to become a kind of um, instinctive argumentative liturgy. <laughs> um, you know, that, 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 they, uh, that they pair it without thinking through entirely. Um, I, th I think that's possible for someone to, to kind of go through this form without necessarily um, thinking about it deceptively, just that's the way they've seen it done and that's the way they do it. Um, I think it's also possible that what might look like a Mott and Bailey from the outside is a uh, is looks differently from the inside, and what what I I guess the way the way that I would try to express that is, um, you know, your position might have some axioms that it considers super stable and super defensive um, that are that are foundational that are functioning as a mod. Um but other things that it sees as flowing out of it, uh, flowing out of those principles, in accord with those principles, um, that are sort of that are functioning as the Bailey, their you know their corollaries or their their attempts to push the logic further, but they aren't as stable, or as stable yet. Um, for someone inside, it looks as if. You know, it doesn't look like cheating. It looks like this is the stuff I'm sure about, and this is the stuff that I think makes sense in terms of the stuff I'm sure about. From someone outside, it might look like a Martin Bailey. Um, yeah, I think I think that language of liturgy, David. I I hadn't thought of it in those terms, and I think that's going to help me to think about this because you're right. I mean, especially with Alex, no, especially with Shackle, less so with Alexander you get the sense that this is a willful act of duplicity that you know full well that there is a logical uh, deficiency here and yet you present it in this way so that, you know, by deceptive rhetoric, you can get people to fall into bad logic. Which, um, which to be fair, the people he's addressing in the original article from 2005, probably many of them fit that description. I, I do think there's a duplicity in some post-structuralist uh, conversation that, that that would be a reasonable thing to conclude. All right, we'll say more about that, Michael. I mean, wh what kind of distinction, if any, then, would you draw between the professional philosophers from the 70s and 80s and the social media activists from three months ago? I think the social media activists often are not acting out of bad faith. I, I, I think it probably, I'm not going to be able to put this terribly eloquently, but it probably doesn't occur to them that there's as much distance between the two statements as they're saying, which is, I guess, what David... Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what David's saying, that th this, is a, this is an honest error. And maybe that's what I'm responding to in Alexander more, because when I read Alexander, I get the sense that this is an error that we can correct rather than some sort of moral failure necessarily. I mean, obviously there's lots of people who still do this knowing full well that the, uh, they're conflating two things that ought not be conflated. But I think a lot of times what this is, is a failure to really think outside of your own little bubble. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair enough. And, and I like that, Michael, because I don't want to cut off the possibility of, 
willful and knowing duplicity. Uh, but I also don't necessarily want to assume that at, at, at first, you know, at first glance. Does that make some sense? Agreed. Which is why I don't like the idea that it's instantly fatal. Right. It's instantly suspicious, certainly. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. when you're when you're talking about arguing with Leotard or Derrida, I, I'm much more comfortable with you calling it fatal than when you're arguing with some, you know, young feminist on Twitter, and that makes it sound like I'm some sort of brilliant adult male correcting her, and I don't mean it like that. Well, I mean, or I mean, if you want to swing it the other direction, someone who is very, very sure that they know the exact meaning of the Colin Kaepernick Nike ad. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, whoever whoever you're correcting, I, you know, I think we'd probably all be a better better off on social media if we assume they're not acting in bad faith, and, and until until you have have reason to believe they are, you know, you give people the benefit of the doubt, but you don't have to give it forever. And another maybe a, a wrinkle to to toss into this is that sometimes when you're when you're outside the fort. Um, you don't necessarily see even distinctions between parties that you it, within a group that you regard as unified, um, such that you might identify as a Montan Bailey defense. What's really an internal uh, an internal debate uh, between uh, between people in the position. So, can you give me an example that, of that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I was yeah, absolutely. Say. Um, if you listen to um, sort of the uh, scientific positivists um, talking about uh, the idea of divine creation, um, the intelligent design movement um, is almost always talked about as a Trojan horse, or in this case, a mot for what the Christians really want which is a literal six-day creation. Um, but within, within uh, the uh, Christian community that I know, the evangelical Christian community that I know, someone being persuaded of intelligent design as an argument for a creator in, in a, a, doesn't necessarily mean they're also six-day young earth creationists. Um, I think you just I think you just accused the scientific rationalist community of committing a weak man fallacy. Yes, maybe I did, but what I'm trying to do is say if you're standing where they're standing, it looks like a Martin Bailey. Um, and but but being able to have that kind of uh, I don't know, char charitable empathy with the side that you're arguing against to try to imagine what it looks like to be inside their position and the possibility that what you see playing out in this way isn't what it looks like from the inside, I think will make you an arguer that's more like Alexander and less like Shackle. Yeah, that's fair enough. And I want to pose a, a follow-up to that, David. I mean... I guess one of my other anxieties about this, uh, you know, calling it a willful strategy is precisely that, I mean, in, in my experience teaching, 
you know, the processes that students go through in learning a new concept kind of look like this Mott and Bailey, right? I mean, you know, uh, they grab onto a new concept and all of a sudden they're, they want to, you know, basically just, you know, hammer the whole world with it, right? You know, to use that old cliche. Uh, but then eventually they come around to a more limited notion of its scope, of its usefulness, right? And I mean, in that case, I mean, I, I, I would be very reticent to call that a rhetorical strategy so much as, you know, a process of maturity. Is, I mean, does that distinction do any work? Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think it fits really well um, with what Michael was saying about uh, Shackle's treatment of the postmodernist when he's uh, in, in that uh, Foucault leotard they are not callow 19 year olds halfway through an introduction to philosophy <laughs> sort of hitting everything with you know kind of badly formed philosophy hammers or theology hammers or whatever um they aren't that uh it 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 makes the attribution of bad faith um in in the in the way that michael pointed out it makes that make more sense but I think it fits with yours that, that we should take into account um, to what degree should I ex should I um, uh, consider whether um, I'm in dialogue with someone who is still working on their position in significant ways um, versus someone who has a long track re track record of an established position. Um, I think it's more I think it's more charitable to uh, to treat in construction as in construction and uh, finished as finished, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I realize as I'm talking to you guys that I am uh, in some ways confessing my own sins because I know that from about age 20 to about age 25, I was a serious cage stage postmodernist. <laughs> right, right. And... You modded many Baileys. Oh, did I ever. Oh, the mods. I, oh, the Baileys. I, I think one problem that you're identifying here, David, is a problem with social media, which makes it very difficult to make the sort of distinction you're talking about. Exactly. If you're, if you're watching some argument on Twitter, unless the person has a blue check mark, <laughs> um, you have no idea whether you're dealing with someone who's exceptionally well versed in a topic or some person who read a magazine article last week and thinks they know know everything right so i i think maybe i i called this the one of the besetting sins of of our era i i think maybe it's just one of the besetting sins of internet discourse and and maybe it's an an argument for having fewer arguments online well it's one of the things that I think we can get out of the, the, the Socratic dialogues of Plato is that yes, sometimes he has hard get hard hitting conversations in those, in the dialogues. Socrates does. Um, sometimes people come out looking bad, but they're all people he knows and they're all people who everyone else in the dialogue know. They know their reputation. They know they know what they're like. They've spent time with them. Um, 
you know, just kind of read one of those dialogues and note those kind of personal elements, right? Um, you don't get that on Twitter. Uh, so it, it, it seems much, much, much harder to have the kind of fruitful dialogue uh, that, that we want in the conditions that you're laying out, Michael. Um, if everybody puts paper bags over their hats, how can we dwell how, over their heads? How can we dwell charitably with one another? Or their hats. That works or their too. Hats. Tinfoil hats. <laughs> yep. Well, Michael, I don't think that this reading calls for an additional, additional passage exit so much as a possible implications finish. So let's try that, shall we? Michael, what implications are there, if any, for Christian thinkers when we think on the Mott and the Bailey? And if you say that there aren't any, why are these articles so sure that there are? And when you're done, pass it to Grubbs. Clearly they are. Alexander's first example is about apologetics, and in particular, a version of the cosmological argument. So your apologist makes a particular claim about particular Christian doctrines. Uh He's questioned about it, and then he retreats to the mot, which is general claims about the order of the universe, the cosmological argument. And uh, I think that's a, a valid criticism of certain forms of apologetics. And, and what's the solution? Uh, either you need to stop trying to move from the first cause or to the, to the Christian God, or you at least need to admit that there's no logical motion between them, or I suppose you actually find the motion. Um but I don't really follow apologetics, so I don't really know how common it is to, to say, to use the first mover argument and then jump to the Christian God. So I, I guess I can't say if, if that's fair as a criticism of actual apologists or just a tendency there might be in apologetics. Do either of you know? No idea. Um, in fact, last time, uh, last time I was reading any, any amount about this, um, a lot of a lot of the current Christian apologist writers that I was um, looking at um, warned against precisely that thing. You know, just because you've established a first mover doesn't mean you've established, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelling in bliss eternally. Yeah, I mean, that that objection makes sense to me. And, and like Michael, I don't spend a whole lot of time reading Christian apologetics. I'm already convinced, as it turns out. So, um yeah, I mean, listeners, I mean, if you know some more about these dynamics, by all means, write in, let us know. But I would say Christians are probably as guilty as every other party in committing this particular fallacy. Just, I mean, it's so widespread, and you can do it for a long time without even realizing you're doing it. Yeah. Go, David, go. As I'm reading it, I... You know, and I think I've already kind of disclosed my hand in using the word charitable. Um, I agree with both Shackle and Alexander that there are um, moral dimensions of arguing well, and that arguing badly on purpose uh, in order to pseudo win um, is is a is is not just unhelpful but actively bad. Um, but as Christians, um, I think of merely avoiding error, uh, while a, while a good goal, um, is still too low a goal. Um, and thinking, thinking carefully about this, uh, Nathan, 
uh, I think has been helpful to me to, to, to see how, how do I as a Christian, um, sometimes even looking at, at other Christian traditions, how have I, um, treat, how have I regarded what they've done as, uh, what other, uh, the way another Christian tradition argues as bad faith, um, when I could think of it more sympathetically from the inside. Um, I think of my Catholic friends uh, who have their calendar of saints and their traditions associated with saints. And when a Protestant asks for arguments, what a lot of Catholic apologists will do is say, well, don't you pray for your friends? And don't you think that people who are still in heaven will pray for their friends? And I, as a Protestant, my first instinct might be to say, Montan Bailey, how do you get from that to um, that larger tradition? But maybe I need to back off of that and consider inside the Mott, <laughs> the Bailey make, may make more sense. Um, or it may... By the way, David, I think that uh, we should definitely uh, adopt Mott and Bailey as a mild curse. Because <laughs> the way you just delivered that was wonderful. Martin Bailey Holmes, what are you talking about? Sweet. <laughs> I like that. Well, and something that, uh, oh, I, I think you alluded to it, Michael, the possibility that there might actually be a connection between those things that hasn't been explicitly traced out, either because it's so embedded in the, in, in, in the tradition that folks have forgotten they need to make it explicit, um, or these are representatives of the tradition who aren't the ones who could draw that line, but there are ones who can, right? Um, the possibility, I think, is there, and charity needs to consider that that possibility is there. And as Christians inside of our little fortresses, um, I think we should do our best as we argue, um, one, not to use the strategy, but also to help um, argue clearly so that we avoid the appearance of it um, because even the appearance of a fallacy can create uh, a kind of misrepresentation or mischaracterization right sometimes an sometimes the fact that uh, the motives of a person who presents an idea actually are relevant to evaluating the idea but as soon as when someone throws the ad hominem flag or, uh, or, or, or something of that nature, poisoning the well flag, um, well, now you're a bad arguer. But gosh, that might have actually been relevant. Um, so being able to, to understand how people are thinking about argument can help us be more charitable arguers to the people we disagree with in the ways that we present ourselves, saying we're aware of the way the arguments look and let's anticipate those objections. That's good. That's good. I mean, I, I thought I knew what the implications of these articles were, but I mean, this conversation has definitely complicated that for me. And I think what I was underplaying and, uh, you know, this is my, uh, incurable optimism coming out. I'm sure is I wasn't sure that there even were any intentional Mott and Bailey, strategies going on but i think you guys have convinced me that i need to pull that back a little bit that uh there is the possibility for willful duplicity even if it's not as common as you know we see it in the other side oh absolutely I, i'm surprised you had trouble thinking that i mean 
I mean, come on. Well, Michael, as you've been saying over these last nine years, I'm the Pollyanna of our trio. Or, or the Socrates, who, who starts with the premise that no one does something wrong intending to do something wrong. They think, they think they're right when they do it. Well, yeah, they think they're right, but they think uh, it's good for me to win this argument, and that's the right thing to do. I, I mean, I'm with them on that. Nobody says I'm going to do something wicked because I think it's the bad thing or the wrong thing to do. Right. So, all right. Well, good conversation, guys. Um, thank you for helping me think through this. Uh, Michael Martin Bailey, what is next week's show about? Uh, Aretha Franklin died earlier. Well, I guess last month, uh, and uh, we're going to listen to one of her most famous albums, I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Love You. Excellent. excellent. I, I, I see that I missed my opportunity when you asked me what was next, just to say, I never loved a man the way I love you. <laughs> I, I'm kind of glad you didn't. I'm kind of glad you didn't. I'm not maybe you can lie. save it for next week? Maybe so. Well, at any rate, listeners, uh, while you're waiting to see if that happens, uh, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can find us at christianhumanist.org. You can also rate us on iTunes, which is a way that a lot of people find their podcast material. Any of those would be most welcome. You can also find us on Facebook, of course. The Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Christian Philippic. Our editor, audio editor is Ellen Peterson, and in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs, I am Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.